Alright, if you would, turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans has been something of our home base as a church since 2009. Since 2009. Uh, there has been something of a method to our madness. Uh, we have been undertaking uh, a project. We actually started in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, watching as God created the world, watching as God made man in his own image and commissioned him to have dominion over the earth. Uh, this was 2008. Uh, our project began when Benjamin was born, so it's been going on as long as he's been alive. That just occurred to me. Um, we saw Adam and Eve sin. We saw the human race fall. We saw the downward spiral of sin in those opening chapters of the Bible. And then we went to the opening chapters of Romans and learned from Paul this very same truth about man's depravity, about the terrible depths of our sinfulness, about why we as human beings so desperately need a Savior. We went back to Genesis and we studied the life of Abraham, chapters 12 to 25. And we saw God make a covenant with that pagan moon worshiper. And Abraham left his pagan gods and trusted the true God. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then we went back to Romans. And in Romans 3 and 4, we learned that same message from Paul. The message of salvation by faith alone. Paul even used Abraham as exhibit A in making his case. We can be saved from our sin by faith in Jesus Christ. We went back to Genesis chapters 26 to 36 and we watched a scoundrel named Jacob get transformed by the grace of God. And we saw God humble that man and refine that man and mature that man. We saw how, saw how God used his word and his promises and his trials and circumstances to grow that man up in faith. And then we went to Romans 5 through 7. And we learned from Paul about our Christian lives and how we've been risen with Christ and set free from sin and how he now works in our lives to grow us in obedience to God. To Genesis, we went back one last time to look at the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. And we saw how God was working providentially, not only to do Joseph good, but ultimately for the good of God's people. And then we went to the great eight, Romans 8, and rejoiced in God's good designs for his people. How God not only works all for our good, but how God is for us. And how, how nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. We went to Exodus. Chapters 1 through 15. We watched as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And yet how he showed his glory by redeeming his elect people, Israel. We learned that our God is a sovereign God, both in judgment, but also in mercy. And then we went to Romans 9 through 11, where Paul taught us about this doctrine of election. How God hardens whom he wills, and yet has mercy on whom he wills. And how God has an ultimate plan to be glorified in human beings. 
We saw at the end of Romans 11 that God has chosen to use the hardening of the Jews to bring many Gentiles to salvation. And then how through the faith of the Gentiles, he's going to bring many Jews to salvation and is doing so, so that ultimately no one will boast in their ethnicity, but all glory for our salvation will go to God alone. And then in recent days, we were in Exodus 15 through 20. We watched as God gave to his newly redeemed people certain moral laws and principles to govern their lives. He saved Israel out of Egypt by his grace. And now he was teaching Israel how to live as a faithful, redeemed people. And as we come to Romans 12 through 16, this is where Paul is going to give us moral instruction. Now that we've been saved by the grace of God... How do we live as a faithful, redeemed people? And Mount Hermon, allow me just to say from the bottom of my heart how thankful I am that you have given me the privilege to preach through these things and to undergo this project. Preaching God's word is one of the greatest delights of my life. And you've given me the opportunity to serve you. Frankly, I preach so slow, so slow. And y'all put up with it and you allow me to do it. And you've been very faithful. And so as we start the the final section of this kind of grand project, I just want to say thank you. And I bless you for being patient and persevering over these years. And I pray that the, the end will be the best part yet and that God will continue to do us good as we study his word. Each time we come back to the book of Romans, I try to remind you why this book has been our home base and why I think this particular letter is so important. And so here's the assertion. I've made it every time we've come back to Romans. So this is my last time, at least right now, in this project to make this assertion. And it is this. There is no other possession that you own more valuable than your copy of the book of Romans. I have asserted that this letter is more valuable than your house. It's more valuable than your car. It's more valuable than your most expensive piece of jewelry or your most precious heirloom. When we look at everything that we own with a proper perspective... The book of Romans, I think, ought to be our most prized possession. Why? Well, God is our greatest treasure. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, these are our greatest love. But more than anywhere else in this world, God has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. So of all our material possessions, there should be nothing that you Value higher than your Bible, your copy of the Scriptures. The Bible is this great treasure chest that you own. And every page of it is filled with life-sustaining, joy-giving, faith-strengthening, eternal truth that can do you more good than a billion dollars ever could. In the Bible, God Himself speaks to us. In the Bible, we gaze upon our Creator and upon Jesus as our Savior. As we read through these pages, we get to marvel and adore. And then as we marvel at our God, we are transformed to be like Him. 
There is nothing more precious that you own than your Bible and of all the books of the Bible. If I could identify one as most preeminent and special, it would be the book of Romans. The way I've described it over the years is that if the Bible is a beautiful landscape of God's truth, Romans is the Himalayas. It's the highest peaks. Why? Why do I esteem this letter as the most precious part of the entire Bible? One, I feel comfortable in doing that because I'm not alone. I'm only echoing the testimony of great men who've said the same thing throughout church history. Men much wiser than me, much godlier than me. Here's a sampling. You've heard these before. Martin Luther said this epistle, Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament. The very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but that it should occup- they should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Romans can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And I hope that's been our experience as a church. William Tyndale said Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. It is a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. John Calvin said, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of the Bible. Puritan Thomas Drack said Romans is the quintessence and the perfection of saving doctrine. And one more, this is from Frederick Godet. He said, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. Even those who are not followers of Christ have recognized the the specialness of Romans. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, poet you might have studied in school, wrote the rhyme of the ancient mariner. He said concerning Romans, it is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. But we don't have to look just to the testimony of others. We can also see the ways God has used this particular book in the Bible throughout history to change the course of history. So Augustine, 1400 years have passed between the death of the Apostle Paul and then the birth to the birth of Martin Luther. So between Paul and Martin Luther, there was no man more influential in the Christian church than Augustine. No one did more to preserve the gospel than Augustine. You and I have the gospel today because of what God did in the life of Augustine. Do you remember his story? Brilliant man, philosopher, an orator, and yet he was living in blatant sexual immorality. He had a godly mother who was weeping her eyes out for the life of her son because he did not share her faith. He was living in the pleasures of sin. And yet God brought Augustine to a place where he fell under conviction He became convinced that the Bible is true, that Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners. But he couldn't make that stand. He wouldn't take that stand with Christ. He wouldn't give himself to Christ because he was so in love with his sexual sin. And he knew that if he followed Christ, it meant he had to give up his live-in girlfriend. It was during this time of inner agony he got into a conversation with a friend, Eliphius. 
God used that conversation to put Augustine into a state of intense inner turmoil. He was struggling inwardly. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to give up this immoral relationship he was in. And just to remind you, this is what he says happened. I love this story. He said, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I found myself driven by the tumult in my heart to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness. I was frantic. I was overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair. I hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and I hugged my knees. You can sense the agony he was in. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree. I gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. And in my misery I kept crying, How long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins now, this moment? And then all at once I heard the singing voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the refrain, Take it and read. Take it and read. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself this could only be a divine command to open up my book of Scripture and to read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back to the place where Olypheus was sitting. I seized the book of Paul's epistles. I opened it, and in silence, I read the very first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. It was Romans 13. Where we're going. Romans 13, 13 and 14. He said, I had no wish to read more and I had no need to do so because in that instant, as I came to the end of that sentence, it was though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all my darkness of doubt was dispelled. I cannot understate how important that moment was. Teachers were arising within the Christian church teaching false gospel. Augustine was the man that God saved and raised up to defend the gospel. Had God not used Augustine, the gospel would not have made it to you and me. Our salvation was at stake in these days, and it was the book of Romans that God used to save this man who would become so important in the history of Christianity. Similarly, we saw in recent days how God used the book of Romans in the life of Martin Luther. Remember, he was teaching that class there at the University of Wittenberg, and he decided to lecture on the book of Romans, and he couldn't understand what Paul meant in Romans 1 when he talked about uh, the, uh, uh, the being justified, and particularly Romans 1 verse 17, what it means that the, the righteous shall live by faith, and then how that breakthrough moment happened that changed the world forever. Let me mention John Wesley. May 24th, 1738, John Wesley goes into a Christian meeting on Aldersgate Street in London. 
God had already been working in this young man's heart. Uh, God had brought people into John Wesley's life who were speaking truth to him. But his soul was in a state of turmoil. He had questions. He wasn't sure what he was doing with his life. He goes into this meeting, and they didn't even have a preacher that day. And so one of the men in the congregation said, Well, I have a book here. I'm just going to read from that book. That was the sermon, somebody reading from a book. And as the man read, Wesley said his heart was strangely warmed. And suddenly in his heart he had a sense that all of his sins had been forgiven. Even mine, he said. What book was it that was being read when Wesley was brought to Christ? It was Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. It was actually the preface where Martin Luther gives the outline of the book of Romans. And that's what God used to save the soul of John Wesley. On and on we could go with why we're going to spend more months in this book. Uh, When I was a child, it was particularly from the book of Romans that I learned the gospel. Uh, Maybe some of you have heard of the Roman road. People would use verses from the book of Romans to lead people to Christ and to tell them the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13. So many of these verses that are precious, I imagine to many of you in this room, come from this letter. It was the book of Romans that God used to strip away my man-centered worldview to help me grasp the depths of God's grace and His sovereignty over all things. And I can just say that now, after years of preaching through this book, it is more precious to me now than it has ever been before. And I hope you've fallen in love with it as I have. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." It won't surprise you that we'll spend several sermons on these first two verses, but there's a big reason why. These two verses are the practical point of the entire book of Romans. These two verses are the practical point of the entire book of Romans. Everything that has come before these two verses was said to prepare the way for this exhortation. Paul has given us 11 chapters of theology. And those 11 chapters of theology have all been leading up to making the case for, preparing the way for this practical command. This is where the rubber meets the road. Here is where the point for your life and my life today is brought directly to bear upon us. And frankly, everything we're going to study after these two verses is explaining how to do these two verses. Everything after Romans 12, 1 and 2 is further explanation of how to do Romans 12, 1 through 2. 
these two verses have been universally acknowledged as the hinge of the letter, the crux of the letter of Romans. These two verses are the practical point, and if these two verses get into our hearts, if these two verses go deep into the depths of who we are, the benefits to us as individuals, the benefits to our families, the benefits to our church, the benefits to this community and the world can be mind-bogglingly wonderful. So do you see the word therefore? Therefore. That's the bridge. That's the bridge in the book of Romans. It's, it's the bridge between the truth we have heard, Romans 1 through 11, and how we are now to live. Think about how we use that word, therefore. Uh, sometimes we use it to reach a logical conclusion. Mammals are warm-blooded animals who breathe air and nurse their young. Whales are warm-blooded animals who breathe air and nurse their young. Therefore, whales are mammals. That's exactly how Paul was using the word here. He's saying that the doctrine that he has taught us demands a logical conclusion. That there is a reasonable conclusion that ought to be drawn from all that he has said. The life described in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is the logical outcome of having had Romans 1 through 11 happen to you. Sometimes we use this word therefore to talk about a truth that leads to an appropriate action. So truth, the milk carton is empty. Therefore, we will get more milk. The house is on fire. Therefore, we will get out of the house. Romans 1 through 11 is chock full of truth that demands appropriate action. Romans 12 through 16 teaches us what that appropriate action looks like. Now just so you know, This is not just special to the book of Romans. Paul uses this method over and over again. Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians particularly operate clearly this way. Paul begins the letter with important doctrinal truth. He teaches good theology. And then the second half of the letter, here is how you should now live as a result of that truth. And so let me just ask you this morning... Why are you here? Did you come here this morning simply to hear truth? Hearing truth is a good thing. I hope you did come to worship God by paying attention and hearing truth. But that must not be the be all end all. Our aim must not be simply to hear God's truth. Our aim must be to be transformed by God's truth so that what we hear on Sunday results in practical believing and obedience on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Doctrine demands a response. If God is real, that truth should change how you live. If we are sinners in need of a Savior, that must impact your life. If hell is real, 
If heaven is real, and there are people all around us every day moving to one of those two destinations, that ought to influence practically what we say and what we think and what we do. We are not here so that we can do better at Bible trivia. We are here to be truly, thoroughly, and practically changed. Paul says that he's appealing to his hearers. Do you see that? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you. This letter would have originally been read aloud to the Christians in Rome and in many other churches. The people, in those days, the people stood and the person leading the service sat and read the letter. So you can imagine you've been standing for all of Romans 1 through 11. Okay? And then the person is reading this letter from the Apostle Paul. And after all of that standing and hearing all of this truth, the, the, the reader then says, now, here's the appeal. Here's what I'm calling you to do. It's, it's an earnest call. It's an eager, passionate plea to the consciences of God's people. It's a plea to you. It's a plea to me. It's a plea to our consciences. In light of God's grace... In light of what Jesus has done for us. In light of God's awesome plan for the world just unpacked in Romans 11. Now, give yourself as a sacrifice to God. Uh, Paul is setting an example here for preachers. Preachers are not simply called to teach. Preachers must teach. Teaching is essential to preaching. You cannot have good preaching without good teaching. But preaching is more than teaching. Preaching teaches and then brings an appeal. Preaching teaches and then calls for a response. What has been the practical effect of Christian truth on your life? Is God's truth merely in your brain? Or is God's truth in your bloodstream? Do you have mere knowledge about Jesus in your head? Or has the truth of Jesus Christ so gripped your soul and captured your heart that they have enthralled your very being? Is Christian truth directing the way you live? Not just affecting the way you live. Is Christian truth directing the way you live? Is it a lamp unto your feet? A light unto your path? Showing you where to go? How to live? How to speak? How to act? I'll just remind us that the devil knows more doctrine than any of us in this room. I tremble at the thought that there may be someone in this room who can answer a lot of Bible questions. But they're as hell bound as the devil himself. How many will go to hell with their heads full of doctrine? How many will go to hell with all the truth that they needed to be saved in their noggins, but it never went further? You've heard it said, the distance between heaven and hell is 18 inches. The distance between your head and your heart. If you're lost in here this morning, I urge you to pray. 
to plead earnestly with the God of heaven with every bit of capacity you have that the truths that you may have up here would enter here and change you and cause you not just to know about Jesus, but to know Jesus. To trust Him, to have a relationship with Him, to surrender yourself to Him. Paul summarizes all of Romans 1 through 11 with four words in English. The mercies of God. The mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That word by means in light of, in view of, because of. In other words, when we think of Romans 1 through 11, here is what ought to come first and foremost to our mind. God's grace, God's mercy towards sinners. If you want to say, what is the book of Romans about? This is what it is about. The mercies of God. The beginning of Romans, our need for mercy. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We are in trouble. Mankind is in trouble because of our sins. We have broken the law of God. We've made ourselves criminals in God's world. We have foolishly trampled the glory of His name and He will vindicate His name. Romans 2 verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The beginning of Romans says a day of judgment is coming. Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And we think, okay, well maybe I'll have some good works to show. He's going to render me according to my works. Maybe I'll have something, something good in there with the bad. But no, Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. You get to the middle part of Romans 3 and you think, yikes, I am doomed. The need for mercy. And then... Paul turned to God's provision of mercy. You think you've got some great gifts around your Christmas tree, and I bet you do. Those gifts don't compare with the gift of God's mercy declared in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified, made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's mercy is shown to us in that He has made a way of salvation for doomed sinners like us by providing Jesus for us. And when we believe on Jesus, His righteousness is accounted to us and we are justified, made right with God. And even that faith is a gift of God's grace. Romans 4, 16, that's why it depends on faith that the promise may rest on grace. 
God's mercy brings us the forgiveness of sins, Romans 4, 7 through 8. It brings us peace with God, Romans 5, 1. It brings us the promise we'll go to heaven, Romans 5, 9 through 11. Those saved by God's mercy are given eternal life, Romans 5, 21. Christians stand on grace, Romans 5, 21. Grace reigns in them, Romans 5, 21. By God's mercy, we've died to our old selves. We've been risen as new people. We've been set free from sin. We've died to sin. We're alive to Jesus. That's Romans 6. The law no longer condemns us. Instead, the law now serves us. That's Romans 7 leading to Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The provision of God's mercy. And in the grade 8, we learn that God's mercy has given us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. He intercedes, even praying for us. We've been adopted as God's children. We can approach him as our Abba Father. By God's mercy, not just our souls, but even these physical bodies will one day be resurrected and glorified and soul and body joined together to walk streets of gold with our Savior. God's mercy is working all for our good. We're going to be glorified on the last day. He is for us, not against us. Nothing will separate us from his love. Mount Hermon, Romans 1 through 11 has just been mercy on top of mercy, on top of mercy, on top of mercy. We were taught that as Christians, we swim in God's mercy. We live in God's mercy. Surely, certainly, absolutely. I quote it all the time. You know what's coming. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. You can't get away from it, Christian. You can't, get, you can't jump out of that. Goodness and mercy are following you every millisecond of your life. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul told us the goal of God's mercy, namely that he would be glorified. And so just before our verses here in Romans 12, Paul brought that section to its climax, praising the riches of God's mercy, praising the marvelous way God has worked salvation so that people from all nations will be saved and it will be clear that God gets the glory alone. So not just the book of Romans, the story of human history is the story of the mercies of God. This universe exists as a backdrop to the story of mercy that God is carrying out as he redeems people through Jesus Christ. Romans 1 through 11, it's all mercy. Now Romans 12 verse 1, in light of all this mercy, respond Marvelous mercy demands a response, not a pay God back response. Because you can't ever do that. And that robs God of his honor. No, Paul says that the response this mercy calls for is a response of worship. Worship. He is calling you to a response of giving yourself in response to such mercy as a living sacrifice to God in worship. This is a let the love of God fall upon you and transform you response. This is a let God's mercy so delight you that you desire to be his servant in any way possible kind of response. God's mercy should move us to want to imitate him. To be in micro, what he is in macro. To worship him through imitation. 
Ultimately, Paul was calling us to a grace-fueled obedience. A grace-fueled obedience. His grace coming to us, and it fuels us in being obedient to Him. And we're going to stop there. And we'll talk about what that obedience looks like tonight. Mount Hermon, let us live in God's great love and mercy. And let us respond to His mercy with happy, worshipful obedience. Amen? Amen.